Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Joe Hooper, founder of Nearby Clothing. Having been at the forefront of women's fashion for almost three decades, Joe Hooper has worked as a buying director and design director for some of the largest retailers, including Freeman's, Debenham's, and John Lewis. Her newish venture, Nearby, focuses on women who more than ever are working from home or part-time and are not always looking for clothes that are about the 95 or the big event. Joe has always been attracted to the Japanese concept of one mile wear and set out to create exactly that, looking good, feeling good clothes in beautiful natural fabrics. We chat about her approach to fashion, the changing fashion landscape, and of course, luxury. Joe, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thank you very much. It's uh, lovely that we finally found the opportunity to get together. Absolutely. So this is going to be a great conversation. I wanted to start firstly by asking how you would describe what it is you do for work. Uh, gosh, I have fun, I think, which is the most important thing. Or I've tried to uh, have fun over the last <laughs> uh, in excess of 35 years, I think. Um, but my, I suppose my main gig is I've, I've been a buyer. I started as a trainee buyer and I've been in buying and design ever since. So it's bringing hopefully lovely clothes to uh, to our customers. So with your um, your new venture, well, it's not that new anymore. It's about three years old, mm. Nearby. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Nearby and how you started nearby well i'd been working for lots of companies in the capacity as i say you know buying director and design director and um i came to a crossroads and i thought well joe if you don't do this now you're never going to do it so i thought to myself what do i want to do and i uh, got my air miles together got a, a blank notebook and went to New York, which I think I've always found is an amazing place to think about what's what's next, what's new, what's fresh. They're brilliant at visual merchandising. And I just went literally with a little blank notebook and I walked around the stores and I drank coffee and I thought about how people were behaving uh, in terms of how they were dressing, what people were wearing to work, you know, wherever there was Wi-Fi uh, and coffee, people were working. And New York, I suppose, has been the leader in that. And we have definitely followed. And I started to form the germ of an idea, which was um, relaxed clothes um, and hence our name, Clothes for Home and Nearby, uh, all in natural fabrics uh, with color at its heart. And so I came back. I don't know what my husband thought I was doing. I came back and put some thoughts together, uh, put some, worked with a, a freelance designer, got some designs going, jumped on another plane, went to see my suppliers and said, look, the big guys are struggling. The little guys are where it's at. I know this is going to be a pain in the ass for you if you work with me to, on a startup, but do you want to do it? And they all said yes, which was the most amazing thing. In fact, one supplier said yes. I was only halfway through my spiel and he stopped me, touched me on the arm and said, Joe, I said yes. I said, oh, okay, great. Um, so got some some uh, samples together, costings, put together a plan, uh, worked with a photographer friend who said, what are you doing? And I said, I've got this idea. He said, great, I'll give you a hand what you need. 
And obviously I needed, you know, in terms of selling online, I needed assets, I needed imagery, I needed to tell the story. Uh, so we worked on that. And everybody I spoke to, and I spoke to a lot of people, said yes. And I was like, you're just being nice. They were like, no, I think you're right. And so uh, when enough people had said yes, I just thought, well, what am I frightened of? Why, why shouldn't I do it? Um, so we got going. I know it sounds very simple, but <laughs> it did take a year. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you know, many people dream of that, don't they? Kind of coming up with an mm. idea and putting that into um, into motion and realizing it. I mean, do you think that your experience um, with buying and having worked with so many companies really helped you in framing uh, framing the exercise? Mm. Definitely. I think... You know, people had said to me over the years, you really, you know, you don't you want to run your own brand? And I was always like, no, because I just knew how difficult it was going to be. And and I have to say, you know, I, I worked for John Lewis. I worked for Debenhams. I worked for Freeman's. I worked for Littlewoods. Uh, you know, I've worked in lots of organizations and I've loved it. You know, I have loved uh, working with teams. The corporate and political side of it is the thing that squeezes the life out of you. And I suppose ultimately that's why I'm not there anymore. Um, but definitely in terms of my experience, it made me realize what's possible. It, you know, I knew very well that actually having a good idea it is not enough. You know, you have to, lots of people have brilliant ideas and they, you know, either don't come to fruition or they just don't get the chances that they should to, to come to public notice. Um, and so having the idea was not enough. It was the practicalities of it. And I suppose I've always been a bit of a doer. You know, I like to do things. That's my favorite modus operandi is to be busy and doing things. And so, you know, um, having those conversations and bringing things to life uh, felt something that I could do. Uh, and I, gosh, I would never, I mean, you know, if, if you'd said to me, Joe, could you start a beauty brand? I wouldn't know where to start with that. You know, I'd have a few ideas about who to talk to, but I wouldn't know the nuts and bolts of it. And I, and I knew the nuts and bolts. Um, and then I also, I suppose, knew the things that would turn up the volume and give us the opportunity to be seen. So I want to ask you about timing. Um, you've spoken about an, kind of an expanse of time, and I just wanted to ask you about the, 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 the kind of test of time. How do you think the fashion industry has changed over the past five years, for example? Gosh, over the last five years, I mean, it, it's it's been an acceleration. I would say it's probably not been anything that wasn't coming down the track anyway. You know, if I look back to my time at John Lewis, I joined in 2008 and they had a website and they were pretty much ahead of the game, really. You know, they sold coffee machines and washing machines and some Levi's, that kind of stuff, uh, wholesale. And and part of my brief was to persuade brands to go onto the John Lewis website. And literally, I was trying to persuade them. I was saying, look, I know you haven't got your own website. I know you're not on anybody else's. I know it seems a bit weird, but um, why don't you sell your brand on our website? And it's hard to believe that that was only, well, it was 14 years ago, 13, 14 years ago. And obviously now, without a website, you don't really exist um, in terms of fashion retailing. So it just, you know, so, so that, I suppose, was always coming down the track. 
And what has happened in the last five years is that uh, the percentage of sort of fashion retailing has just increased, you know, the online percentage, I should say, has just increased uh, exponentially. And, you know, but I would say at certain times of year, we would find at John Lewis that it would be up to 45, 50, 60 percent in the sort of Christmas rush. Um, and then uh, and then obviously with um, COVID, there was no alternative than to shop online. I think what we, you know, and when we set up nearby, we set it up as a as an online mobile first business uh, with a little flagship store um, and some partnerships. And, you know, thank goodness, because when Net-A-Porter closed their uh, warehouse, when Next closed their warehouse, our little warehouse was still going. So, you know, so our clothing really, really um, touched a chord. And, you know, the only way you could keep going was by sending parcels out to people. And people love getting parcels in the pandemic. And I suppose, you know, those were customers who perhaps might not have shopped online before. Uh, there is no doubt that, you know, I have three sons who are in their 20s and that when I say to them, do you want to go to the shops? They go, what for? You know, and if I say, well, what would you like? They say, well, here's the link. So, you know, so there's a whole generation for whom that experience of going out uh, just feels a little bit unnecessary. They research what they want online. Um, I think there's definitely been a bounce back for certain consumers who want to go into store you know, want to touch, want to feel, uh, want to try on. Um, and, you know, that there are lots of ingredients behind the scenes in terms of the online boom that perhaps those who are concerned about the uh, eco uh, effect of what we're doing, they're not really thinking about those perhaps in great detail. I was just going to ask you about influences. Uh, do you think their role is so critical in terms of um, promoting and then the subsequent purchasing of, of product, fa fashion product? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, we work with a, a number of influencers and some of them are very small and some of them are bigger. And um, undoubtedly, they do convert, as we would say, convert into sales um, because there is something, if they're the right influencer, and they are authentic. And, you know, that's the difference, isn't it? I mean, it, it, I suppose it's the social media equivalent of word of mouth. And, you know, the, the, the great influencers are those who go, I like this. I like that. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, or this wasn't for me, but it might be for you. Um, so there's a, you know, I was I heard something today that most people are now getting their news via podcasts. So you have to be obviously careful where you get your information from, which is why, as, as I say, I think authenticity is super, super important. So if they feel they have an authentic voice, you know, I mean, we've done a collaboration with our ballerina, Marianella Nunes of the Royal Ballet. And that came about, I mean, I'm a bit of a ballet freak. I love the ballet. I'm a big fan of Marianella's and sort of just before lockdown, we connected and we kept in touch and, and uh, from a friendship came uh, the fact that, you know, she's either in a tutu and strapped into something and feeling uncomfortable or she's in her trainers. And our clothes were sort of the solution to being comfortable, but still being stylish. So, you know, the, the connection there is very authentic.
It's such an open, exposed world, social media. How do you control it? It's extraordinary because I think, you know, it, there's a bit there's a bit of you that goes, well, if I didn't photograph it and put it on Instagram, did it really happen? Yes, of course it did. You know, and I have great admiration for, you know, various artists who say, please put your phone away and be in the moment. Uh, you know, because I don't think we're very good at being in the moment now as a result of the phones in our pockets. Um, and you're right. I, I think the problem is whatever you put out there and people do get it wrong um, sometimes because it's like an email, isn't it? You can read it one way, you can read it another. I was talking to a journalist and she'd done a beautiful um, post on Instagram and a reel and an article in the uh, paper for us. And she said, oh, I, I always wonder if these things work because people write the ho most horrible things about you if you look underneath, if you look at these comments. Um, and she said, actually, I think I think the newspaper turned the comments off for this particular one. Um, so you, you are definitely putting yourself out there. I mean, we we don't talk about political stuff because I don't feel it's the right place. Um, we just talk about loveliness and colour and we know it's only clothing, but sometimes, you know, a great dress, a great shirt can make you feel great. And that's sort of, that's our position really. Yeah, um, and I didn't want to turn this into a conversation about Instagram. <laughs> However, you know, about two weeks ago, um, I'm just trying to find it, about two weeks ago, there was an article in The Guardian about um, an influencer who wrote about having no hot water and going to the Savoy to have a bath. I don't know if you saw that. No, luckily. The headline for this Guardian newspaper were, was influencers are the worst people on earth. The Savoy woman proves it. And it was about Lydia Millen. Um, and it was pointing to this fact that this woman who is an influencer didn't have hot water and she went to the Savoy. And it was just how damaging, you know, that um, environment is. And I just wondered, I'll send you the link, but... I just wondered what your thoughts were. You know, you, we're living in these times of austerity for many, many people. Mm. The divide between haves and have-nots has um, got big, and this links very well to the next thing, which we'll talk about, which is luxury. But I was wondering what your views are. You know, you've got people who are in that environment. Is it, okay, I mean, in your view, is it okay to to kind of say something like that because that's what you do and that's your world, or... You know, should there be some restraint? Oh, I, I don't think it's appropriate because it's just, well, it's just tone deaf, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you've got no hot water, hopefully, you know, your neighbour might help you out or you'd go to the local sports centre or, you know, that's what we used to do if we had to. You know, going to the Savoy, it's kind of, it's bonkers. Um, so, yes, I think... You know, there are definitely some influencers who there's one who's got this fabulous place in Ibiza and all she'd go. Yeah, anyway, uh, enough said. And uh, so, yes, I think, you know, it was one of the things when during lockdown we were sending out emails and posting on Instagram and we had to be very careful. You know, we were aware that whatever you're doing and it's a bit like Christmas, isn't it? You know, Christmas can be a fabulous time, uh, but it can also be a very sad time because uh, there are lots of memories tied up with Christmas. Um, so you just have to be 
aware that uh, not everybody is, well, most people can't go to the Savoy for a bath, let's be honest, <laughs> or wouldn't want to. Hey? That's the other thing, exactly. <laughs> no, but, but it's interesting because I think, you know, where we've got this growing divide, we are seeing people who can afford it engaging in all this activity that is not being, there's no restriction. And there's no, is there reason for somebody who can afford a 10,000 handbag to stop buying that handbag because others can't afford it? Or is it simply, well, that's the difference in the worlds they live? There is no doubt that... Uh, you know, even if you are not in a situation where you're worried about being able to pay for your electricity, uh, that you are definitely much more conscious because of what is being, well, because of what is happening out there, because of news, however you get your source. You know that people are struggling, that food banks are growing. There is, you know, how are we going to resolve the situation with various workers? In many cases, quite rightly asking for salary increases that just keep their heads above water. Um, how do you resolve that with the, you know, the, the thought that a 250 pound velvet dress might make you feel super happy? We're living in, in times where you know, luxury brands and luxury is so prominent. Mm. You know, Chanel handbags have gone from, I was speaking to somebody the other night, Chanel handbags have gone from like three grand, you know, 10 years ago to nearly nine. And it's a, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. And I suppose I'm thinking that, uh, my thinking is that, is it, you know, is that nine grand handbag worth nine grand? Mm. You know, the strength of the brand you know, powers the consumption. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because when I opened a couple of the Sunday papers yesterday, I was, I paused for thought because the inside two full pages are an advert for Chanel um, perfume. Mm. And and obviously that is, that is the thing that, you know, if you save up your pennies, you can afford. And obviously that is, you know, or Chanel Sunnies or whatever it might be. And those are the things uh, that people feel if the brand still has that, um, that uh, rarity value, if you like. You've still got that little touch of it, haven't you? But you're absolutely right. You know, when I was growing up, uh, when I was working in fashion, you know, 20 years ago, I could afford and I would save up and buy myself a beautiful pair of Prada shoes, which I wore to death. Well, I wouldn't do that now. Uh, they're just too expensive. It's outrageous. So, you know, it, it that level of luxury seems to have gone beyond. But I think the lovely thing is that there is, uh, you know, it's okay to buy vintage. It's okay to buy secondhand now. And if you've loved those Prada shoes and you no longer want to wear high heels or you can't get your tootsies into them, uh, then sell them, give them to a charity shop, they can have another life. So, I, you know, as to whether or not something is really worth it to you as the consumer is, I would sort of say, you know, it's the old pounds per wear, isn't it? I treated myself when I uh, left um, one of my big jobs to a Bottega handbag, and that was eight years ago, and I have worn it and loved it, and it makes me happy. So that, to me, was a good purchase um, and it is beautiful still. 
And it probably will be beautiful when I hand it on to somebody else, I hope. So, you know, so in terms of that rel level of relative value, but again, you know, the pricing, I, I don't understand some of it. I don't understand some of it, I have to confess. Mm. No, it's interesting you say that because I think that, you know, there's there's nothing wrong spending money on something that, you know, you want to, you know, that you want. Um, I suppose the conversation with you, which is interesting, is because you're in that world where I suppose in a way you're encouraging people to buy your clothes because that's your business. Mm. So it's it's that 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 fine line between sensible purchases, so to speak. So it's not all about fast mm. fashion because mm. that's not what you're about. You're about buying no. things that you keep them and you wear them. And you know, even this example about Bottega. And in actual fact, a little anecdote is Bottega bags apparently are the most expensive bags to make out of all of them because of the complication with the weaving. Mm. So there's more mm -hmm. leather in a Bottega bag than an Hermes or Chanel or anything. Anyway, mm. that's a little side, to, yeah. side story. Yeah. But, well, that makes, that makes me even happier. But you're right. But you know, Sean, it's making me think. So we, you know, everybody talks now about buy less, buy better. And that is ob obviously our mantra. The idea being that our styling is not... You know, we're as far away from fast fashion as you can get, hopefully. But I hope that we are, are still contemporary. And, it, you know, but I think back to the buy less, buy better. I was interviewed when I was at Debenhams, actually. Uh, and I was expecting my twins. So there we go. So that's 23 years ago with three other um, heads of buying for a newspaper. And one of the things I spoke about in that interview was buy less, buy better. And so, again, you know, talking about the trends, that's one of the things that has accelerated. I mean, you have got Primark and ASOS at the other end of the scenario, um, which is, you know, uh, which obviously it doesn't apply to, sadly. But I think most people are thinking, OK, uh, am I going to wear it? How often will I wear it? Is it going to be useful? You know, there's lots of those conversations, I think, that are happening. So by all means, spend you know, £250 on a dress or, you know, more, a few hundred pounds on, on a handbag. But if you feel that you will use it, then you're doing the right thing. I think the sustainability angle comes from that point because I think the buying stuff to wear it once and then it's so shoddily made that actually even your charity shop, your local charity shop won't want it. Where's that going to end up? That's going to end up in landfill. So I think that that the buy less, buy better. I know everybody says that now, but that has definitely been the mantra, I would say, of the last 20 years for me. Fashion is inherently unsustainable. I mean, that's the mm. business, isn't it? Because yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Reformation has a great line. I don't know if you know that, but you know they say the the number one sustainable option is to be naked, uh, and sort of you know we're trying our best to be the second best option. Who knows? Um, so absolutely, you're right. You know, fashion is about encouraging consumption. Um, there's no doubt about that. But I think you can do it. Uh, in a considered way, let's put it like that, because people do wear clothes and, you know, people want to feel nice and they, you know, and at this time of year, they want to dress up. We are humans. We are social creatures. It has ever been thus, 
you know, going back hundreds and thousands of years. Um, you go back to the Vikings. They used to get dressed up and, you know, there was embroidery and beautiful buttons and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's but obviously it is, I've never seen clothing be as cheap as it is now relatively, I would say. Oh, you know, when I was... Yeah. Always expensive. Or is expensive. You're absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And and um, and that's yeah. That's not an easy one to reconcile with. No, and I, I suppose that I mean there are. I mean, without being too negative, I mean there are. You know, there are, are there are of course positive aspects. You know, we've got economies of scale. We've got economies that rely on consumption. Mm -hmm. You can't just stop consuming. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I guess it's you know within the the that luxury environment where you know, a pair of trousers, you know, is 600 pounds and a handbag is 12,000 pounds and a pair of shoes is, you know, 900, 2,000 pounds. I mean, you know, we've gone in a space of, um, and you, you'll know this better than most, we've gone in a space of probably five years from a 170 pound pair of shoes to a 780 pound pair of shoes. Um, that just to me is, is, within that luxury brand environment seems to be slightly odd. Well, I think also they are, you know, they, you are reducing your um, audience to a very small percentage of people. Uh, you know, I know that, you know, I, I remember a few years ago, I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, if I'm really a grown up in fashion, surely I need a Chanel jacket. And then thinking, oh, well, you know, I went into Chanel, the prices were crazy. Even then, I tried one on, I looked about 120. So that was easy. It was easy to let that one go. Um, but, you know, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that now. You know, if I was to buy anything from Chanel, I, which I have done recently, I bought a, a basically a little purse, which was a vintage purse in a shop, fabulous shop down in uh, on the coast. And that made me very happy because, uh, you know, this was its second life. And I was going to give it a lovely home for a while and then it'll go on to somebody else. But, you know, if you think about those brands, they are really reducing their audience dramatically. Um, you know, and I think that's quite a tricky thing to do. You must be very sure of your marketplace, your position in that marketplace to to not want to attract aspiring um purchases but then i wonder you know um tom ford just sold his business to estee lauder for billions i wonder if it's you know i mean that's telling estee lauder is not a fashion company mm. so i wonder mm. if it's you know you know the 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 adage that it's in the perfume yeah yeah absolutely i think you're right i think you know that that's the magic isn't it is that I was thinking about the Chanel advert and I was thinking, oh, I had a little bottle like that. I was given one Christmas and I, you know, and fragrance is just one of those senses, isn't it? Uh, sorry, uh, uh, sensory experiences that is the most evocative, I think. And so, um, you know, so perfume to to crack the perfume market. You've sort of got everybody, haven't you, uh, who will aspire to what you're doing at that level in your brand. Uh, and obviously, if you do the wrong thing um, in terms of your advertising, mentioning no names, beginning with capital B, uh, you know, you can trash that just as quickly, you know, by not thinking about the, you know, your broader audience or just not thinking probably. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's why, you know, a fabulous lipstick 
a great perfume, a pair of sunglasses, whatever it might be, uh, that gives you a little taste, doesn't it, in, of that of that world yeah it does and but even now perfumes are becoming you know they're not 70 pounds anymore you know 200 pounds for a bottle of perfume i don't know if it's just mm. you know i'm getting older and everything seems to be i'm doing what my mother does yeah. it's just, my mother said but it's so expensive i said yeah but that was 20 years ago uh, i know I, you're right i mean they are i mean they are more expensive you've obviously got very expensive tastes um and there are definitely ceilings aren't there in terms of you know what you feel that you might pay um, for something, but again, it's the relative value, isn't it? If you if if a beautiful bottle of perfume lasts you a year, that is, you know, I can't I can't work out how much that is a squirt, yeah. but you know, not much. Relatively <laughs> no, no, it isn't exactly to to make you walk out the door feeling, you know, put together. Yeah. But you know you know my interest as you know is is very much in luxury and how we define it and how uh, people perceive it because I'm really interested in preserving craftsmanship. I mean that's my thing. Mm. And mm. you know when we think about luxury and the way we sold luxury at the moment or have been for for many years from these big you know, these the conglomerates, you know, it's much more about the branding. It's very little about the actual product. Uh, I was mm. just wondering what your thoughts were on, on that. I agree. I think, you know, our supply base is a real mixture. So we buy from India, we buy from China, we buy from Portugal, we buy from Lithuania. And when I uh, started going to see this little factory in Portugal, uh, female owned and led and run and they were concerned because uh that in portugal you're paid more to clean a hotel room than you are to sew a linen shirt and the factory owner was very concerned she's like well you know i this was my father's business i'm not sure where i'm going with this business the great news is that one of the things I think that has happened with the fact that we felt so global and we could buy things from wherever we wanted and have them shipped from China or the States or wherever is that uh, the, the, the manufacturing, um, we've wanted to buy a manufacturing closer to home so we could control it a little bit more. And that has been great news for people who have factories making shoes, shirts, bed linen in Portugal, Lithuania. Uh, and there's definitely, I mean, I would love to manufacture in the UK. And I'm definitely, we're at the point now where, you know, we've we've sort of established uh, a a profile, if you like, we know the pricing that we can secure. Our volumes are growing, and I would love to um, uh, be able to say, "Yes, gosh, I manufacture in the UK," and it's definitely something I am going to investigate. We're able to investigate a lot uh, more closely now than we would have been able to. Um, but you know, the difference being a dress that I would retail for two hundred and fifty pounds would be eight hundred pounds. That's the difference at the moment, um, but. I think what has happened is the fact that we've realized because we can't get anything from anywhere at any time now, because there is a cost to that, and it might not happen, that smaller makers have, um, it's worked well for them, mm. you know, in Italy, in Portugal, in Lithuania, and that's got to be good news. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, when you think about smaller makers, there's a, one would hope <laughs> that, you know, a smaller maker, the focus is much more on, on the quality. There's a, a sharing of knowledge um, in the in the in the workroom in the factory because smaller makers is not going to be a production line, and for me, you know, luxury is not about price; it's about the construct. So I think of those environments um, as being um, really positive in imparting knowledge. When you mass producing for whoever it is, you know, specifically those luxury brands who sell their product on on craftsmanship. You know, the maker doesn't have the opportunity because mm. they peacemake, aren't they? They're making, mm. you know, somebody might mm. put in the zip and it's passed down the line. Somebody mm -hmm. might kind of sew on the strap and then it's passed down the line. What you're talking about, that small um, envi making environment, there's a sharing of knowledge. And that for me is a luxury. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yes. Yeah. And I think that there was a great little um, documentary on the BBC about Barber. Uh, which obviously trade on the fact, you know, quite rightly that they started in North Shields or South Shields mm -hmm. um, and making in the UK and the sort of sense of community within that factory, mothers and daughters, uh, they're very proud of what they do. They're very proud of what they make. They resurface and they refinish garments. Um, and But that, you know, that's a community. That's a community. And uh, I think, you know, as you say, you, you would hope you want the understanding of that craftsmanship. I mean, it happens also in India. You know, you, you see hand-blocked fabrics, you see hand-woven um, and embroidered fabrics, and those are great skills. And I think, you know, that's one of the good things about Instagram is quite often you can see the story behind uh, what's going on. And I think for a discerning consumer, they want to know, they want, you know, I mean, I have, haven't liked it particularly, but they want to know who I am and they want to know who you are and they want to know why you're qualified to talk about X. Um, but at the same time, there's a lovely way of, of showing, you know, how hand-blocked fabrics are made uh, and where they come from, how, um, you know, as you say, the, you know, the leather is finished on family-owned uh, shoe factories in Portugal and Spain, uh, and because they are family owned, you know, that, that that's still a, a great industry in those two countries. So, um, so I think the storytelling aspect, um, you know, it means more, doesn't it? Yeah. It's probably why Not on the High Street has done so well and Etsy and, and smaller businesses. There's nothing nicer than going to your local bakery and they've baked the bread on site. Yeah. No, absolutely. So I wonder then if luxury is going to emerge as a completely different construct. So it's going to move away from this huge conglomerate of mass-produced products. Um, I think you're right. I think I think the idea of luxury is something different to that because, uh, yes, there are two sides to it, aren't there? So undoubtedly after lockdown, suddenly, you know, having said that the world would change and we didn't, we wouldn't have fashion weeks, you know, twice a year where all the journalists got flown to blah, blah, blah. Well, as soon as, you know, things opened up, the big brands had so much money to spend marketing wise. They flew everybody everywhere. Uh, and it was, a, uh, where were we? You know, I thought we said things were going to change. And it sort of felt 
again, a little bit tone deaf, but they've got big bucks. So when I invite my journalists, you know, and I say, oh, come and have a sherry and a mince pie and a chat, and then everybody else gets flown to the south of France, you know, I can't really compete, but that doesn't matter necessarily. But so there's that aspect to it. But then I think the other angle on luxury is, you know, going back to where I bought my little vintage Chanel purse, I was in Deal and Deal has got some lovely little shops, had this vintage um, handbag shop and I went and chatted to the lady and I saw it and I thought, oh my word, this isn't how today was supposed to pan out. But it did. And it was beautiful and very luxurious. And at the same time, they have a great little market there on a Saturday. And people are, you know, stopping and having a glass of wine. And they have beautiful, there was a lady offering uh, head and neck massages with her essential oils that she had made herself. And she was there with her husband and her little boy. And we had a chat and the oils are beautiful. And that feels luxurious. I mean, that really feels very special and very personalized. And I think the flip side of COVID is that we have uh, we have learned the value of that, mm. I hope. Thinking about the product you produce, is there a difference in your manufacturing than there would in a, um, thinking about a dress, for example, mm -hmm. would there be a difference in the manufacturing process compared to a dress that is costing um, 8,000 pounds? from a from a um one of the luxury yeah. brands. Do you know what honestly? No. You know, we have we we have French seaming. Um we obviously, you know, test the fabrics to make sure that the the tensile strength and the dye fastness and everything else. We use uh we have bamboo swing tags. You know, we we do take that moment to really make sure that there's proper attention to detail because a consumer expects that, you know, if you're not paying 50 pounds for a dress, then you're, and you're paying 250, it doesn't make any difference whether you're paying 250 or 750, you know, the expectation is there. And I hope we meet it because they will last a very long time. In fact, I had a designer piece that I was showing to um, a factory and they looked at me and they said, would you like it made as badly as this? And I said, no, actually, <laughs> I'd, like it made to my, I'd like it made to my standards. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And that's really interesting because, you know, a shirt, so you've got a collar, you've got a sleeve, you've got a cuff, you've got a placket, you've got a front, a back, a, you know, two fronts, if it's got buttons, yeah. um, a back. Um, they seamed, so you could either um, overlock or French seam um, turn in, turn out, woven label, printed label, uh, a swing tag, and then the packaging. So the value, nine out of 10 times, isn't around the manufacturer, is it? No, it isn't. I mean, it'll be, it'll be about the fabrication that you're using. It'll be about, you know, you can pay a fortune for beautiful buttons, obviously. Um, and it'll be you know, where the garment is made um, and and how many you've made of them. Um, you know, those are the, that's the bottom line, really. Interestingly enough, you know, talking about factories and conditions, you know, there are a lot of little boutiques that buy uh, from Italy and it's got made in Italy made in it. But do you know where it's made in Italy? You know, it's made um, 
outside Florence, isn't mm -hmm. it, where they have, I mean, they have massive, massive number of factories that are, I tell you, they will not have been past any SEDEX inspections. Um, and they are, you know, there's a lot of Chinese workers who work there. So, you know, the made in Italy thing is a bit of a misnomer and people don't understand that. But in terms of, yeah, where the cost of the garment is, is fabric um, and trim. And then obviously your marketing. And But if you multiply, you know, your cost price by eight times, you get a big ticket price. It's really important for me to have these discussions and for people to hear these discussions because more often than not, there's the belief that if you buy, oh, I don't know, the Dior shirt, um, it's going to be better than if you buy a shirt that is a quarter of the price. You know, chances are it'll be more fragile, actually. <laughs> um, you know, and you'll be a bit scared of wearing it, possibly. Uh, but no, you know, the, the componentry, and I think that's where some brands do, you know, Uniqlo, whether you love them or hate them, in terms of their denim, it's fantastic. I would say some of the other stuff is not great, but the jackets and the denim, amazing. And they use beautiful Japanese denim uh, fabric. And you sort of, you can't better it. And so, you know, you're not paying £10, you're paying 30 or 40 but you could be paying 200 I want to ask you a little bit about uh, sustainability. Give us a little bit of an insight into your world and your response to sustainability. Well, I think it, it, the bottom line is it starts from our approach to purchasing. So the buy less, buy better is, is the most sustainable thing in a way that you can do, that you buy clothes that you actually wear. We always say that, don't save me for best, even our velvets and everything, you know, wear them every day, use them. And then if you don't use them, pass them on. So that's the fundamental thing. But then we also only work in natural fabrics. So we work in, we use an awful lot of linen and a lot of manufacturers have moved away from that. Uh, but linen, you know, uh, I think 97% of the world's linen is grown in Europe. It's irrigated by rainwater only. Um, they use all of the plants. So fundamentally, that's a nice place to start when we know there are so many challenges around cotton, uh, producing cotton, where the cotton comes from, in fact, and, you know, how people, how, uh, you know, the fashion industry has sort of put an embargo on anything that is produced in certain parts of China because of the Uyghur situation. So, you know, you have a lot of responsibility in a lot of places all along the way, if you like. But one of the other things that I think our consumer understands is that natural fibers, unlike polyester, you know, you you don't have to wash them all the time. If you if you take care of them, you know, we talk about our garments liking a bit of a steam, a nice press, freshen them up that way. Uh, don't You don't have to dry clean. Obviously, you can dry clean if you want to, but I'm a great one for washing most things, everything from cashmere to silk. And if you take care of those garments, uh, they will last you a lifetime. And I think, again, that's that's a sort of, you know, there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on. There's a lot of, you know, well, this is made from recycled plastic. Well, okay, but where does the plastic come from in the first place? And what's the process you do to recycle the plastic? So, uh, you know, if somebody like me in the industry isn't sure about what is the best uh, process, then the consumer, it's very, very difficult. So I think you have to, as I say, you have to think about your bottom line philosophy and being clear on that and that is natural fabrics 
garments that you can wash and garments that should last you a lifetime. That's the most important thing. I mean, we do lots of other things. You know, we're, we're re-examining our packaging, as I say, our back neck labels are made of recycled polyester and the labels are made of bamboo, not paper. Um, you know, but I'm still not clear whether sending things out in paper bags and boxes is better than recycled plastic. I, and I, there isn't a definitive answer on that, I would say. Um, so, you know, we are like many people trying to find our way through it. Being a small brand, we can do nice things like, um, I mean, I found some beautiful broderie fabric when I was in India that had been left over, let's say, from a, a very famous American designer. And I over dyed it into different colors and used it. it was beautiful. It was just sitting in the factory gathering dust. So, you know, so using something that's already in the supply chain feels that you're doing the right sort of thing. Um, and, you know, we do try and use uh, BCI, the Better Cotton uh, Initiative fabric, because most of our factories realize that that's what they have to do as well. Um, but, you know, it's challenging because. Um, you know, those the bit the big organizations and the wool organizations, et cetera, et cetera, charge you a pretty penny to be a member, you know, and when you are a small business, ten thousand pounds a year to be a member of so you can put, you know, a particular stamp on is a is a big commitment. And you sort of wonder what you're getting for that. You have to tell your story, your your sustainable story in the best way you possibly can. And sometimes that's not the most obvious rubber stamped way if you like yeah yeah you don't need you, you you don't need the rubber stamp from other institutions mm. to determine and to promote the way you mm. address issues around sustainability i guess mm. that's a takeaway i was speaking to kenya hunt who's the editor at um l um and her podcast that comes out um in a couple of well it's after this um and i was asking her i said when did secondhand become pre-loved and vintage funnily enough i think John Lewis was in the vanguard of that because they used to, oh, they still do, they sell secondhand jewellery. And, and always, silverware. Yeah. And, I mean, beautiful aquamarine rings for £10,000 and diamonds and and with a little sign that says secondhand. And you're like, oh. I mean, it was a big thing. We used to say, can't you say vintage? And they'd say, no, we can't say vintage because vintage means, what does vintage mean, 50 years old or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think so. And, uh, but you know, they did that. They did it for costume jewelry and they did it for precious jewelry. And it was a little, you know, uh, best kept secret, if you like. And so they were, they were doing it very early on. Um, and I think, yes, probably it was, it was the jewelers who, who were first onto it, weren't they? Because I, gosh, I remember about 30 years ago buying a piece of jewelry from a little, sweet little jewelers in Chester. And that was definitely pre-owned. Well, I suppose if you think about something like a Chanel purse or handbag, those are the things, you know, made of calf skin and beautifully finished. And they've got, everything's got its particular serial number to prove that it's real. Then from that, there comes a value, doesn't it, of passing it on because you think, well, this is the real McCoy. It should be beautiful. There are these fantastic places now because I was talking about my Bottega which actually is looking a little bit worn around the strap but you can send it back 
and they will refurbish it for you and it will come back looking as good as new. Um, and that is, you know, Anna Murphy of the time, she wrote something brilliant. Somebody had written some snidey remark in the newspaper about, you know, nearby dresses. Who can afford to pay this for da 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 da? And Anna's response was actually, this is a considered approach. She said, we, we need to dress more like our grandmothers did. That's it. You know, my mum had, she had her Sunday best, quite literally. She had three different suits and she had them, you know, made by a little lady. And, you know, I mean, she, you know, we did not have lots of money swilling around, but that was what you did. And, you know, so so Anna's point is the sort of philosophical approach that we if we dress more like our grandmothers, we will have, you know, we'll buy things. And, you know, I was talking to somebody about the fact that I think I had some velvet knickerbockers in the 80s when I went off to university. And that was my going out outfit, you know, and that was it. I didn't have another one. I only had that one. So, you know, so that philosophy of um, uh, taking care of things and, you know, and the great thing is, you know, now who would uh, buy a very expensive dress to go to a wedding when you've got all of these fabulous rental sites and for three days and, you know, unless you fall over, uh, you, you know, can wear the most amazing dress and then not worry about it. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the understanding and also there's much more stuff in the marketplace, isn't there, than there used to be. You know, we, we've we've acquired more stuff in the last hundred years along the way. So there's more stuff. There's more vintage stuff to go around, probably. Undoubtedly, people are thinking in terms of experiences, for sure. And obviously, retail can play its part in that. You know, we we have definitely done you know, a little vouchers for people where they've said, oh, can I give it to so-and-so? So, you know, we do gift cards. Yes, and come in, have a proper try on. We'll have nice coffees and a croissant uh, and make the whole experience lovely. But there's an, undoubtedly people are looking to spend on experiences going out, nice wine, great food. Um, you know, it's much more that way, I suppose, than acquiring stuff probably. My final question, it's always the same one, um, is, what, uh -oh. <laughs> is what is your luxury? Oh, gosh. My luxury, my, and this is going to sound like my ultimate luxury, I think, is the first morning of a holiday when you finish your first coffee and somebody, if you're lucky, might say to you, a waiter, a waitress, or your husband might say, would you like another cup of coffee? And then the answer is, oh, that's nice. Yes, please. And it is the luxury of time, actually, is what it is, isn't it? It's, it's that, oh my, I can actually sit here and either take in the view, read the paper, read my book, listen to some music, have that second cup of coffee without having to say no i'm really sorry i'd love to stop but i've got to run yeah, brilliant that's my luxury well this has been brilliant joe thank you so much for joining us on the in pursuit of luxury podcast oh it's been a lot of fun i hope i haven't said anything too naughty well we can edit that out <laughs> Shame. Oh, we'll definitely leave it in <laughs> brilliant thank you joe and thank you to our partners intellect books 
Thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can listen to all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favorite listening platform. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.